Hello and welcome to the Progress Series, where we discuss scientific principles for optimizing human performance. My name is Dr. Phil Price, and on today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Tyler Churchward Venet, Assistant Professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Physical Education at McGill University. Now, there's a lot of training involved in the hybrid program. So to ensure that we are recovering between sessions and avoiding any negative effects with residual fatigue or reduced protein synthesis, we need to make sure our nutrition is optimized. In this episode, Dr. Churchill Vinay and myself discuss why protein is important for hybrid athletes, what's the difference between myofibular and mitochondrial protein synthesis, and what are the best protein sources for optimized recovery and performance. But before we get into the episode, I just want to tell you a little bit about our sponsors because without them, this podcast would not be possible. I wanted to express my gratitude to my production partner, Cult Media. Cult Media has been instrumental in the development and success of the Progress Theory. They have created brand guides, comprehensive podcast strategies, enhanced the podcast production, developed custom workflows for me, and edited and mixed all of the video, audio, and social media content. Cult Media's simple coach, create, and collaborate process has saved me hundreds of hours in podcast production, resolved countless technical issues, and consistently helped me to improve my podcasting game. So if you want to establish and engage your audience or are ready to launch your own podcast, head to www.cult.media, that's cult with a K, to learn more. Also, thank you to Human24, fueling human potential and optimizing everyday human performance and well-being. The supplement range at Human24 not only helps improve your lifestyle, it optimizes it. The Human24 products are designed to fit around your circadian rhythms from the moment you wake up to key moments in the day when you need optimal focus to getting the best night's sleep. There is a product to optimize each phase of the day. My personal favorite is the Live On Form Pack, consisting of the products Rise, Flow, and Pre-Sleep. Rise is for the morning, and it's my absolute favorite. It's a drink that tastes amazing, it hydrates me, and improves my focus to win the morning. At 2 p.m., I take Flow, which is a caffeine-free nootropic, perfect for improving alertness and concentration during that mid-afternoon slump. And finally, I take pre-sleep just before bed, which is a comprehensive nighttime complex, perfect to support a performance-driven lifestyle. Check out the website www.hmn24.com for all their products, articles, and links to their awesome podcast for those wanting to learn more about human performance. You can even check out the episode I did with them. I thoroughly enjoyed my chat with Phil Lerney, co-founder of Human24, and it has led to an awesome collaboration with Human24 supporting the progress theory. If you want a 10% discount on all Human24 products, head to their website via the links in our Instagram bios of the progress theory or my personal Instagram account at Dr. Phil Price, or use the code PhilPrice at checkout. As always, Follow the progress theory on Instagram, YouTube, and check out all of our other episodes. Here is Dr. Tyler Churchwood Venet. Hi, Tyler. How are we? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on, Phil. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on to the Broga series. I know this season we've been talking about concurrent slash hybrid training, but we haven't really done anything regarding nutrition. Uh, and we had a past episode with Dr. Matt Lee, and I was 
asking him for some advice on who's the best person to speak to when it comes to sort of nutrition and concurrent training. And you mentioned you. So I was so glad that you so promptly replied back. So I've been really looking forward to this episode. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, that was that was nice of uh, Matt to say that. Uh, there are a number of people that work in this field to be, you know, considered among them. That's, uh, yeah, quite a quite a nice thing for Matt to say. So I appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. Like, I started reading your research, and I know this might be a little bit of a tangent a bit too early, but I just wanted okay. to get it in quite early because I just found it fascinating because some of your research has looked at insects as a protein source, right? That's true. That's true. Yeah. Some of that research was done while I was a, a postdoctoral research fellow okay. uh, working in the Netherlands uh, at Maastricht University. That's where some of that started. I think those conversations were initiated over a pint of beer uh, with uh, a pre- pr- my, my mentor at the time, uh, Luke Van Loon. I'm trying to remember exactly how it all came to be, but I think I got an email advertising like an insect-based protein powder geared towards athletes but it wasn't something I knew knew anything about. You know, I was exposed to more of the usual suspects like whey and casein and soy and mm. insects. And I, I thought it was maybe a bit of a joke at first, but I looked into <laughs> it a bit more, started talking to Luke about it. And um, yeah, I mean, uh, realized that, yeah, insects are consumed as, as part of the diet in many parts of the world. Then realized actually not far from where I was working at Wageningen University, they had a... a, a whole department really focused on insect science. And there were some people working there that had an interest in, in insects um, as a source of protein for, for humans. And so we ended up writing a, a review on the topic, sort of looking at what do we know about basically the, the nutritional composition of insects. So what, you know, how much protein do they have? So we wrote a review on that. And then um, actually when I left, I was I was involved with uh, a project, although uh, Wesley Hermans is the the lead author on the study, actually where we we developed insects. We fed them these uh, labeled amino acids. Um, so we developed what we call intrinsically labeled insects, and then we did a feeding study where we basically fed the insect protein to humans. Um, and because they're labeled, we can kind of track the amino acids from the food that we've eaten in the body so we can look at how these proteins are digested and absorbed and we can look at how the food we eat actually uh, gets incorporated into muscle protein uh, through taking a biopsy sample. So that's where we put a needle into somebody's leg and just extract a very small piece of, of tissue. So uh, congrats to Wesley. I think he, he you know pulled off a really nice study and, and based on that study at least, um, they, the insects seem comparable to uh, to milk protein. Wow. And very, it must be very exciting working in an area that seems really quite new. Is, is that shown a lot of promise to progress? Like if other cultures are already using insects as a good protein source, do you think there's a lot of scope within other cultures, say like Canada, the UK? You know, I'm seeing more and more different types of protein, like pea and plant come out. Like, uh, is there a lot of yeah. scope for, you know, insect protein to really make a headway in the market? That's a good question. I would say the biggest challenge is psychological um, at mm. the moment. <laughs> so I, I think a lot of people are adverse to the idea of, of consuming insects. I mean, I can, I can say that I've tried cricket powder, but probably wouldn't be my first go-to protein. If I'm going to use a supplement, uh, you know, I would probably take something, uh, something else. Um, <laughs> So it's new for me too, but um, that, that's a really good question. I, I think there's a lot of research going 
into um, sort of optimizing some of the sensory characteristics of these protein sources. Obviously, they have to taste good for people mm. to ingest them, right? I think flavor is a huge component. And so they have to be made in such a way that people enjoy them. If they don't enjoy them, they won't be used. But I think, as I said, I mean, these, you know, insects are consumed in many countries across the world already. So even if the scope doesn't expand and it's, you know, sort of stays where it is, I think it's important to kind of get a better grasp of what is the nutritional profile of these proteins for the people that do consume them and don't have a problem eating them? And what are some of their biological effects, right? You can obviously take a sample and measure the amino acid content and the protein content, but at some point you actually have to feed them to humans and get a sense of, okay, how, how do they affect certain outcome measures? So in the, in the study mm -hmm. I mentioned that was uh, conducted at Maastricht University by Wesley, I mean, we looked at muscle protein synthesis rates, whole body protein synthesis rates. We used a sort of a unique model uh, where one leg exercised, the other didn't. So you can kind of look at what is the effect of protein in a, in a leg that does nothing and what is the effect of protein in a leg that's undergone muscle contraction. So you can kind of get a sense of, okay, how would these work in the post-exercise setting? And then obviously comparing them to other more conventional proteins uh, is important because that's a lot of the... I guess the impetus for these insect proteins is that, you know, with the, the idea that the population is expanding, we're going to need more protein to, to feed the planet. And uh, it may not be feasible to, let's say, you know, produce enough high quality conventional protein from livestock to feed everybody. So certainly we need those proteins. They're very good quality proteins, but we may need to look to some additional sources in order to complement existing proteins and you know, insects have been proposed as one source, um, but there's a number of novel proteins that people are investigating. And certainly plant proteins are the hot topic right now. And people have also things like concerns for animal welfare. So that plays into it as well in terms of dictating what people want to eat and not eat. Yeah, I can imagine the plant proteins being quite a popular topic at the moment. Um, at One of the sponsors of the progress theory is Human24, and they have a plant protein. It's really quite amazing but i do notice it's like a different texture um yeah so it goes back to what you're saying like you know something could have the most amazing sort of profile but at the end of the day the consumer needs to like it and want to consume yeah. it so there's so many different factors at play it seems it isn't just like oh this is the best protein there's so many other things which are involved with mass producing and getting the consumer to do it and the, i guess the knowledge of knowing what to put in your body for the stress that you're putting under, especially when it comes to training. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it extends beyond just protein. I mean, I think we all know that, you know, getting adequate fruits and vegetables every day is important, but if you've got a cold beer in front of you or, uh, <laughs> you know, a couple of potato chips, um, it's sometimes hard to ignore those, uh, largely because we love the way they taste, mm. but you know, um, so you have to, you know, balance it out, I guess, is the best way to put it. I know we went off into quite a tangent there, but it'd be great if you could give a bit of an overview of your progress through nutritional research. I know you've done some stuff in the Netherlands, uh, you're from Canada, yeah. but yeah, a little bit of background to you would be great. Okay, so I'm originally uh, from Toronto, Ontario. Uh, so Canadian, as you said, I did all of my sort of formal formal academic training um, in Ontario. So I did a, an undergraduate degree in kinesiology at York University. 
uh, in Toronto. And then I went a little bit uh, west to what was at the time the University of Western Ontario. I think it's now just called Western University uh, in, in London, Ontario. Did my master's uh, there, uh, my master's of science in, again, kinesiology. And then I went to McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, where I did a, a PhD with uh, a guy named Stuart Phillips, who's um, quite well known in the field of sort of protein uh, metabolism and protein research. And then um, got married. And then me and my wife didn't have any kids at the time, and she was up for moving to Europe. <laughs> so we, <laughs> um, we packed our bags. I think I got married, finished my PhD, and moved to Europe all in the same month. So it was quite a stressful time. Wow. But then, uh, yeah, moved to Maastricht uh, University, in the Netherlands uh, and worked uh, with a guy named Luke Van Loon, another excellent researcher in uh, protein and amino acid metabolism and really enjoyed my time over there in his lab. Spent four years there and realized that, you know, I couldn't be a postdoc forever. I need to try to find a job and, uh, you know, um, all of my, you know, family's back in Canada. So I'm now at um, McGill University in Montreal uh, in Quebec, so sort of the neighboring province to Ontario. So it's about a six-hour drive back to Toronto. So not close, but uh, certainly a lot closer than being in the Netherlands. Uh, so I'm uh, I'm an assistant professor now at uh, at McGill in, in Montreal, which is uh, a fantastic city. Highly recommend uh, recommended if you get a chance to come visit. Yes, yeah, certainly. Like we said before the podcast, um, obviously I've been to sort of Western. Canada but I can't wait to see the rest of Canada and hopefully it'll be through like a research purposes maybe through a conference but um what made you go into the field of sort of protein metabolism and concurrent training yeah so I, I guess it started initially more with an interest in protein and amino acid metabolism I think at a young age I developed an interest in weightlifting or resistance exercise I think I was interested. I was an athlete and interested in sort of incorporating resistance training to get stronger. Thought it would improve uh, my sport performance. And as I got more into resistance training, I realized that nutrition is also something important to consider in terms of kind of optimizing your performance. And then I guess in sort of the the world of resistance training, there's there's a lot of emphasis put on on protein, right? Maybe because our muscles are made of protein. So we, you know, the idea is that, hey, you know, protein is important in order to provide the amino acid building blocks that we need to support goal of, let's say, building muscle. Um, so I guess through, through sort of resistance training, I got interested in nutrition and, and specifically protein and realized that, you know, protein is, is important in sort of maximizing the adaptive response to resistance training, right? And I think that's now well appreciated uh, scientifically that, um, you know, if we if we ingest protein after a let's say a session of lifting weights, it stimulates an increase in what we call protein synthesis or just the building of muscle protein. And over time, it can actually lead to can help support muscle growth and improvements in muscle strength, which are you know common goals that people have when they lift weights. And so, I guess I was interested in kind of studying this. Um, I think it was during my master's I got exposed to some of the work from Stu Phillips. Um, and hey, he's at McMaster, not far from where I am, and got in contact with him and was fortunate to get an opportunity in his lab. And then I was really able to kind of dive into learning more about I mean, my full-time job, basically, as a PhD student, was just studying protein and amino acid metabolism. Mm -hmm. 
So that's really how it, it got, you know, how I got interested in protein metabolism. And then it wasn't until I started my postdoc actually with Luke, where we did um, kind of some of the first concurrent training studies that I was involved with. Um, it was actually some work that was funded by uh, PepsiCo. And uh, it was looking at different types of proteins. So in some of the studies that we did, we looked at um, some dairy-based proteins, so whey and casein, which are just proteins that are extracted from cow's milk. And then we also looked at milk itself, which is uh, largely a combination of those two proteins. Um, there's some other proteins in milk as well, but those are the two main fractions. And then we looked at uh, soy protein, which is uh, a high-quality plant-based protein. And then we looked at, at, you know, how do these proteins kind of compare in their capacity to stimulate a rise in, in protein synthesis in the body after an individual does a, like a single bout of concurrent training. So we had, you know, individuals come in, do sort of an acute leg-based uh, resistance training, you know, bout. So they, you know, I think they did a leg press and a knee extension to sort of, you know, work out their, their thigh muscles uh, and then rode the bike for about 30 minutes and then ingested one of these proteins. And we were curious to see, you know, over a couple of hours post-exercise, how do these proteins kind of compare in terms of their capacity to, again, stimulate the muscle building process. So the idea being that if we, if one is superior to the other, and that's maybe a signal that, you know, implementation of this protein in the long term may be potentially advantageous um, in order to, you know, support adaptations to concurrent training. Out of those different protein sources, which ones have you seen to be more beneficial for protein synthesis than the others? So you talk yeah. about using milk, soy. Is there any in particular that you found quite beneficial when you've started to include both strength and endurance training? Or is it just, I don't know, let's say it's casein. Casein seems to be best if you're doing strength training only or if you're doing a strength and endurance concurrent type training uh, program. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see the differences between, you know, the different sources. Yeah. Um, so in, the, in the, the series of studies that I mentioned, we actually didn't see any differences among the protein sources. Um, it's maybe important to mention that uh, all of those sources that I mentioned, so milk protein, whey, casein, soy, those are all what we would call high-quality proteins, so they're very rich in essential amino acids. They're relatively high in leucine. Um, but there are some differences in terms of the amino acid uh, profile of those proteins. And I guess the series of, of uh, studies we did within the context of concurrent training really stemmed some from, from some work that was done focused on sort of single-mode resistance training where there had been you know, evidence for differences between whey casein and soy after single mode resistance training where whey protein actually elicited uh, the greatest increases in muscle protein synthesis. I think soy was kind of intermediate and then micellar casein was shown to be not that effective in the study that I'm thinking of. But we saw no differences. And I think my, my, my thoughts have kind of changed on this topic over time as more research has come out. But I think that if you're looking at muscle protein synthesis as an outcome measure, I don't think there are big differences among protein sources if you're at a, at a dose of, let's say, 30 grams or above, and depending on how long you're studying the effect of the proteins. So um, if you're studying them for, 
let's say, five or six hours, I think they're largely similar. But if you study them for a short period of time, I think you're going to maybe see a benefit of, of something like whey over casein because whey is a, it's a very rapidly digested protein. It's been referred to as a fast protein because when you ingest mm. it, it's acid soluble. So when it comes into the acidic environment of the gut, it just basically goes right through it. And so when you measure blood amino acid levels after ingesting whey, you see this very rapid and high increase. Whereas when you eat casein, it's much more attenuated. It's much more protracted. It's because casein coagulates in the acidic environment of the gut. So it's digested and absorbed more slowly. And then there's been other studies that have compared these proteins over a more extended period of time, and they don't really see that much of a difference. So I I think if you're at around 30 grams of protein, they're largely going to be similar in terms of their effects on protein synthesis. And if there are differences at the protein synthesis level, when you look at like longer term studies where you have outcomes such as muscle mass or muscle strength, you don't really see that many diff- uh, that big a difference in terms of the source of protein. If you get into an extreme situation where you're comparing, let's say, a very high quality protein like whey to maybe something like collagen, maybe then you'll see a difference. But largely, I think the differences are pretty subtle and not something I would really lose sleep over. For mm-hmm. most people, it's probably not a major concern. That's really quite interesting because I've seen articles where people are trying to argue one protein source over another, or they're saying, you know, you need to have whey straight after your training program, but have casein at night because it's digested much more slowly, so it does that overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess it's quite nice summarized by you just saying, well, that's all well and good, but ultimately, long term, there still is no difference between the between any of them. Which kind of leads me to my next question. I know you mentioned collagen, because I wanted to discuss... What is a low source or quality source of protein? Everyone's so busy trying to find out some ranking order between whey, casein, and soy that if they're all regarded as high quality, what actually is a low quality? Yeah, so not all proteins would be considered high quality. And and maybe I should say that there are sort of scientific ways that quality is assessed. Um, Two of the most common approaches are what's called the protein digestibility corrected amino acid score, the PDCAS and the DS, digestible indispensable amino acid score. It's a long scientific bunch of words, but really these are systems that we use in order to determine protein quality based on their, uh, basically their, their ability to meet essential amino acid requirements in humans. So as humans, we need to eat protein through the diet in order to get what our body needs. We have the ability to synthesize some amino acids, but others we need to uh, get through the diet. So that's one of the factors that's, that's looked at in a protein is does it contain uh, sufficient essential amino acids to meet human requirements? Um, and also another important factor is the digestibility of those, uh, of those proteins. So animal-based proteins in general are high quality. They have the essential amino acids that we need and they're quite digestible. And then plant proteins tend to, again, based on these um, means of ranking proteins, tend to be a little bit lower because they tend to be a little bit lower in some of the essential amino acids that we need. But it's maybe important to to keep in mind that this is when you look at a single protein in isolation. And the story changes, for example, if you think about the context of a mixed meal, right? Where, you know, let's say you sit down to eat dinner. It's not like you're just going to have whey protein sitting on your plate or soy sitting on your plate. You might have like, I don't know, let's say some rice and beans. If it's, you know, uh, taco night at my house, 
have maybe a bit of meat on there. So the idea, you know, the point is that you're eating multiple foods that contain different sources of protein. And when you eat all these, you're mixing them all together. And then so one protein source that's maybe deficient in a few essential amino acids might be compensated by another uh, protein source. So in the end, you're more or less kind of getting what you need. But basically, a, a low quality protein or lower quality protein is one that is, is, is deficient, let's say, in an essential amino acid that we need. Collagen is, just a, is, is a protein that is uh, deficient in tryptophan. And so it has a lower rating. Although there's a lot of interest in collagen at the moment as a protein supplement, a lot of claims for it. Mm. But if you go based on this, as I said, this PDCAS and DS uh, kind of ranking proteins, it would be considered a low quality protein. But um, that's not to say that it's useless. Um, it may have benefits in certain conditions or when combined with other protein sources. Um, and I think more work needs to be done to address that question. What is so special about the amino acid leucine, especially in terms of protein synthesis and especially in terms of protein synthesis for concurrent training? Yeah, um, so that's a, that's a good question. So leucine is, again, one of these essential amino acids. So it's, it's one that we need to get through our diet. I think that's one of the reasons that uh, whey protein in particular gets a lot of talk is because it's, it's quite high in leucine. I believe it's around 12 to 12% uh, or so. So it's, it's quite high. So that's one of the reasons why I think whey protein is, is quite a good protein in terms of its quality and also in terms of its capacity to stimulate protein synthesis. In all of the studies that have really been done with whey, it's usually either better than the other protein source when you measure muscle protein synthesis or equivalent. But it, I can't really think of any studies where it's shown to be inferior to another protein source. So it's either on par or better uh, than the proteins it gets compared to. But leucine is um, it's one of the branch chain amino acids. And it's, it's as well as being uh, sort of a building block for muscle protein, so it's one of the amino acids needed to synthesize a polypeptide, it appears to sort of act as a signal in the body to turn on the process of muscle protein synthesis. And it's unique. I'm not really sure why. I don't really know that we have the answer to that. But other studies have shown that you can give uh, leucine alone. So you can give like crystalline leucine and you'll, it'll stimulate protein synthesis. So it acts as a molecular signal to turn on protein synthesis through a protein called mTORC1 uh, or the mechanistic target of rapamycin. So it, it turns on this protein and this protein plays an important role in regulating cell size uh, through stimulating protein synthesis. So somehow leucine is, is the idea is that leucine is sensed and it, it turns on mTOR in order to help increase the rate of, of protein synthesis. And so within the context of concurrent training, I mean, that's one of the reasons why uh, in, the, in the series of studies I mentioned, we looked at these different proteins that, again, have different contents of leucine in them. And so we sort of thought, again, largely based on what, what has been reported in the resistance training only literature, that whey protein, uh, partly because it's higher in leucine, might elicit a greater rise in protein synthesis but we, we didn't see that. So certainly, there's not like a perfect relationship between a protein's leucine content and the stimulation of protein synthesis. Leucine is one factor, but other essential amino acids are going to be important. Okay, that's really quite interesting. We um, had Keith Barr on not too long ago, and he talked about you know the mTOR pathway with protein synthesis and how the AMPK pathway 
may be able to interfere with the mTOR pathway, thus interfering with protein metabolism and particular myofibrillar uh, protein synthesis and all that sort of thing. So it would be really quite interesting to play on that because when it comes to concurrent training, if there was some form of interference effects with AMPK, perfect might actually interfere with the mTOR pathway. They might think, okay, maybe if we had more leucine or more protein to try and combat the fact that we might have something else affecting that molecular pathway, which we need for protein synthesis, maybe we need more leucine. But are you, mm-hmm. you kind of saying that really we haven't really seen the evidence for that, like leucine or amino acids would come in and activate the mTOR pathway to stimulate protein synthesis. The fact that we're doing endurance training, which may enhance another molecular pathway, which may affect that, adding more leucine doesn't necessarily inhibit what's trying to inhibit the mTOR pathway. I hope I've explained that well. I'm probably going in circles. No, 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 no. That's, a, that's an interesting question. I mean, Keith, um, Keith is certainly the expert on the topic. So let me see if I can kind of tackle that. So certainly I think in sort of, you know, rodent models and preclinical models, um, there is this kind of antagonism, I guess you could say, between mTOR and AMPK. So protein synthesis is sort of an energetically expensive process. Um, It requires ATP, the energy currency of the cell, to synthesize protein. And in fact, there's, there is evidence that during exercise itself, right? So when the muscle is actually contracting, that protein synthesis rates are actually suppressed. And that's perhaps because, again, it requires ATP to synthesize protein. And during muscle contraction, synthesizing protein is maybe not the top priority. It's, you know, we need ATP to fuel muscle contraction and so forth. And so, you know, it's possible that protein synthesis is suppressed. And AMPK, as you mentioned, is kind of an energy sensor in the cell that gets activated under conditions of energetic stress, right? So muscle contraction being an example of uh, energetic stress. And again, so you, you see this sort of antagonism in, in some of these um, preclinical models. But in human studies, and, and somebody to speak to on this topic um, is uh, William Apro. I believe he is uh, from Sweden. He's done a lot of really good work on this. um, And he would be able to to kind of really give you the the latest update. But I I think the situation is a little bit more complex in human muscle in terms of seeing this antagonism between AMPK and mTOR activation. And the other thing to keep in mind is that although AMPK activation could theoretically inhibit mTOR, you know, in the post-exercise setting, when we've stopped muscle contraction, and let's say we're also ingesting carbohydrate afterwards, theoretically, you know, that energetic stress is beginning to subside, right? Once we stop contracting our muscles, that increased demand for ATP will begin to subside, you know, if we incorporate any sort of post-exercise nutritional intervention involving carbohydrate while that's providing energy, in order to help, you know, resynthesize muscle glycogen, et cetera. If we've got protein in there, we're getting amino acids in order to help stimulate protein synthesis and muscle building and remodeling, et cetera. So it's an interesting topic, but I think in humans, the the evidence that Mm. exercise activating AMPK and specifically inhibiting protein synthesis via mTOR is a little bit, I wouldn't say super strongly supported. And again, if you have Will April on on your podcast, I mean, he'd be the uh, definitive, he'd give you the definitive answer on that. Mm. Yeah, I'll just have to 
try and find his email and give him a shout. What's the difference between myofibrillar protein synthesis and mitochondrial mm-hmm. protein synthesis? Yeah, so that's a good question. Often in these studies that we do, we report myofibrillar protein synthesis rates and mitochondrial protein synthesis rates. So when we, you know, in order to do this research, we need to take a muscle biopsy. So we take a small piece of muscle and that piece of muscle will contain thousands of different proteins. But basically in the lab, we take that piece of muscle and we do a bunch of steps to sort of process it. And we can basically isolate a myofibrillar enriched protein fraction. So myofibrillar proteins are the proteins of the myofibril. So, you know, proteins like actin and myosin, um, proteins involved in muscle contraction. And there'll be other regulatory proteins like troponin and tropomyosin. But these are are an important fraction to look at because, again, it's these force-generating proteins. And the myofibrillar proteins are also the most abundant in muscle. So around 60% of total muscle protein uh, is myofibrillar protein. So that's why we look at that, um, because again, it's these, these force-producing proteins. And if you're an athlete, then you're, you, know, you care about the force-producing capacity of your muscle. So when we think about strength, for example, we think about these proteins. And uh, because they're so abundant, they also you know, they contribute to the, the hypertrophic effect, right? When our muscles grow bigger, you know, it's largely because we're, we're, we're increasing the amount of contractile protein in muscle. But the mitochondrial proteins, I mean, they represent a much smaller proportion of total muscle. So maybe about 5% of total muscle protein is these mitochondrial proteins. Um, so these could be proteins involved in the respiratory chain, for example. Like I said, there's, there's, there's there a much smaller total amount of mitochondrial protein than myofibrillar. But the idea of looking at this fraction is that, you know, uh, particularly within the context of endurance exercise, we tend to think about mitochondria so if we're you know, seeing a, a rise in the rate of mitochondrial protein synthesis, that could be a signal that maybe this intervention, be it nutrition or exercise, is important for eliciting mitochondrial biogenesis, right? So an increase in the size and or number of mitochondria. Although it doesn't tell the whole story, but it's, it's perhaps a signal that maybe that process has been um, initiated. Yeah, that's really interesting because whenever people think of endurance exercise, they... I guess, think about carbohydrate, fat for some form of oxidation for the for energy systems, but they don't really think too much about protein because protein's more thought about for, you know, myofibular protein synthesis and the recovery from resistance training. Right. How important is, say for a concurrent training program, how important is it for carbohydrate to be paired with protein to try and improve, I guess, both myofibular protein synthesis and mitochondrial protein synthesis? Or are they just two separate things? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, carbohydrates are, are I would say, critical for the, you know, the concurrent training athlete. Um, mm. You know, our carbohydrates are really the, the energy source uh, for our muscles. So when we think about energy from food, we think about carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. Um, but really, it's carbohydrates that are the preferred fuel source. And carbohydrates are also important in the post-exercise setting from the perspective of resynthesizing muscle glycogen um, that's been depleted, right? So our muscles and our liver can store glycogen, which is a stored sugar, basically. But when we're, when we're exercising, particularly for prolonged periods of time, we deplete those finite stores. 
and we need to we need to replenish those energy stores through ingesting carbohydrate. So I think for the concurrent training athlete, it will be important to co-ingest protein with carbohydrate. So the carbohydrates again to replenish muscle and liver glycogen and the protein in order to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. So it's maybe important to to mention that when we're speaking about the science, there's not a lot of evidence that ingesting protein stimulates a rise in mitochondrial protein synthesis after exercise, but it definitely stimulates what we call myofibrillar protein synthesis. And so, yeah, some of the work that I did also looked at mitochondrial protein synthesis, and we don't actually see that ingested protein is is really enhancing the rate of mitochondrial protein synthesis after uh, exercise. If it's not protein, uh, what Mm -hmm. does after exercise increase mitochondrial protein synthesis what's the what stimulates that that's a really good question so i mean there there is certainly evidence um although it's it's not entirely consistent but exercise itself will serve as a as a stimulus for mitochondrial protein synthesis but a lot of in a lot of studies that have been done it's it's hard to see and part of that may relate to kind of the nature of the study design Often these acute studies that we do looking at protein synthesis are what we call acute studies. They're done, let's say, in a single day. And we look at post-exercise recovery period only for a couple of hours. So let's say maybe five hours. And in that time frame, studies have often had a hard time detecting an increase in mitochondrial protein synthesis and certainly no additional benefit of protein on mitochondrial protein synthesis. But over more prolonged periods of time, there is some evidence for exercise increasing mitochondrial FSR or fractional synthesis rates. In terms of other factors that stimulate mitochondrial protein synthesis, I'm not really sure what might be doing anything nutritionally. That's certainly an area that could be explored in a bit more detail to see if there are other compounds in food, for example, that can stimulate Uh, mitochondrial protein synthesis. Going back to what you said near the beginning of the episode, we had that study where you had one leg was doing leg press, leg extensions, was doing exercise, then you had the other leg, which was kind of like a control leg, doing nothing, Mm -hmm. and you were seeing how, so I guess the effect of exercise plus protein affects one leg, and then just protein affects the other leg, in Mm -hmm. in theory. What were the findings from that particular study? So I think, um, yeah, I mean, that's a model that's used quite a bit in, in the field. Again, you know, we, we, the idea is to ingest protein and then look at the effect of protein in a rested leg and a leg that's undergone exercise. So basically what we tend to see is that the combination of exercise and protein will elicit a greater increase in muscle protein synthesis than the effect of nutrition alone. So The idea is that exercise kind of sensitizes the muscle to ingested protein or amino acids. And so we get a greater stimulation of muscle protein synthesis. And we also basically use more of the amino acids from the food that we've eaten in order to build muscle. It gets a little bit technical in kind of explaining the difference. And that's part of the reason why I studied in uh, in the Netherlands is they have this intrinsically labeled protein approach. 
so they can actually look at how much of the food that you've directly eaten has now become body protein. So that, that group has this, uh, this slogan, you are what you eat. So we can basically, you know, we can label milk, we can have people drink that milk, and we can actually look at the amino acids from milk becoming amino acids in muscle tissue. So That's really cool. Yeah, it is pretty cool. Um, and and mm. Luke's group's really one of the, they're at the forefront of this um, and, you know, really the, the experts in the world on sort of the application of intrinsically labeled protein to study protein metabolism and amino acid metabolism. Regarding that method, the, you know, one a leg exercises, one doesn't, mm-hmm. I guess this is just my interest in sort of methodologies, but does that leg that's not exercising, can the person walk around or does it have to be put in a splint so they're not moving as much just to really get a difference between limbs? The only reason I ask, I know we've done some blood flow restriction training mm-hmm. studies at the university, St. Mary's University. And yeah, we've done it where they've been putting a cast in one leg to act as some form of detraining and use mm-hmm. that as a bit of a control leg. Um, in these studies, do they follow a similar pattern? So generally the way that these studies would be done is you'd have somebody come in and you'd, let's say, have them do a bunch of leg presses or knee extensions with a single leg if you were looking at resistance exercise or, you know, they've also done studies where, you know, one leg will cycle to sort of mimic, you know, an endurance exercise stimulus. Mm -hmm. The other leg isn't uh, usually immobilized per se in these studies. It just sort of hangs freely on the, you know, the contralateral side of the body and then... Mm -hmm. Believe it or not, in these studies, people spend a lot of time in bed. So they'll do their exercise stimulus, then they'll hop in bed. Um, that's largely because it's you know sort of convenient for us as researchers because we end up taking a lot of blood samples from them, and they need to be in bed for the muscle biopsy procedure. But it also you know the idea is that we're sort of making sure that the effect that we're measuring is from the exercise stimulus that we've given them. If they were to, let's say, allowed to go walk around for five hours while we study them, well, then it gets a little bit tougher for us to, let's say, differentiate our exercise stimulus versus, let's say, the several thousand steps they've taken over the day after, after that exercise. And so it's just, it's, it's kind of a clean way mm-hmm. to do an acute study, but it's, it's definitely, you know, not necessarily representative of real life where it's not like most of the time people exercise and then hop in bed for several hours at a time necessarily, right? Um, and so maybe this is a good time to say, you know, a lot of other uh, researchers are also beginning to incorporate a novel, relatively novel way to study protein metabolism under more free living conditions, which is using this, what we call heavy water-based approach, where it allows people to look at integrative protein synthesis over several days or weeks at a time, as opposed to, let's say, the acute effects of a single meal or a single exercise bout over, let's say, five or six hours. This people drink the, the water, and we can study protein metabolism, again, under free living conditions over days to weeks, incorporating you know, many other factors. So uh, lifestyle, uh, the effects of lifestyle, sleep, exercise, etc. It's a research approach that a number of groups are incorporating right now. That sounds really cool. It does seem like uh, over the last five years, there's been a real push for, I guess, increased ecological validity with a lot of uh, approaches in, in a number of different areas, you know, nutrition, strength training, whatever it might be. So it's fascinating to see how things progress because they're really trying to develop things with applicable findings, I guess. Indeed, indeed. You know, it's, um, 
it's it's a challenge in in mm. you know certainly in the the area that I work in um, with with protein and amino acid metabolism. I mean, I love metabolism and specifically protein metabolism. So it's a lot of fun to do these acute findings. But you know, when we go to a conference and present our data on muscle protein synthesis, a question that's often asked is, well, that's great, but what are the effects on muscle mass in the long run? Right, most people probably many, many listeners perhaps of your podcast who, who train for themselves are perhaps less, you know, they're not thinking about protein synthesis. They're thinking about, okay, is my exercise leading to bigger muscles, stronger muscles? Um, is my endurance pr- uh, training program allowing me to, you know, run faster and run further and feel less fatigue? And so the question is, you know, what, how, how much can you ex- extrapolate what you measure in an acute study over several hours to, hmm. let's say, a change in phenotype or how you look or how your muscles work over weeks or months or years, that's hard, perhaps not possible. Although there is some, some evidence of a, of a relationship between some of these acute findings and what we see uh, in the long run. I think that quite nicely ties me into what I wanted to discuss last because what would be your recommendations for, say, uh, as an example, I am going to try and attempt to hit a 130 kg cl- clean and jerk in the weightlifting. It doesn't sound like much, but um, about 10 years ago, I attempted that in a weightlifting competition and completely blew my knee out and I've never been near it since. So okay. that's kind of like the strength portion. Right. Uh, and then at the same time, I'm I'm doing or training for uh, a sort of ultra cycling marathon, about 240 mm-hmm. uh, kilometers. So you've got, you know, a strength component and an endurance component. What would your recommendations be for me nutritionally to try and help support that training? Yeah, it's a good a good question. So focused on on nutrition, I mean obviously, you know, the the protein is going to be important after your after both types of training. So after your weightlifting training as well as after your your cycle training in order to I mean the, the proteins in there in order to help repair and remodel tissue Right, um, and so I would be trying to get in, probably, you know, around twenty-five to thirty grams of protein after your workouts, and you know, again, the other key nutrient to consider is going to be carbohydrate. So I think the amount of carbohydrate to ingest is going to be somewhat dictated by the nature of your training. Um, if you're doing like, let's say, a lot of volume, particularly endurance volume, where you're likely going to be depleting your your muscle glycogen stores then you definitely want to make sure that you're ingesting sufficient uh, carbohydrate afterwards in order to replenish those glycogen stores. Um, but perhaps more important uh, than the nutrition is, is, is the training itself, right? So I always view kind of like the training itself is, is the foundation and then the, the nutrition can certainly help. But you know, if you want to succeed in weightlifting, you have to train. If you want to be a good cyclist, you have to train. And the nutrition's there to kind of support that training. So I would make sure that your training is is properly thought out. So, you know, in terms of concurrent training, it's important to have enough, let's say, recovery between exercise bouts. You know, I'd probably do my weight training and cycle training on different days, not on the same day. So that would be one thing to consider. I mean, if you're cycling, you're probably spending a lot of time on the bike, but there is some evidence in terms of like, you know, concurrent training models that something like running is perhaps maybe a little bit more demanding on the body. 
just because it's got a little bit more impact. There can be more of an eccentric component to the muscle actions versus what you'll get on a bike. So the fact that you're cycling, and I'm assuming spending most of your time on a bike is maybe a good thing. But I would you know, carefully plan your training, make sure you've got your training all sorted out. And that applies to like not only you, but I think most people. There's something attractive about the idea of like being able to take a supplement and see a lot of progress. But the reality is progress comes from like hard work in the gym and planned training and so forth. And then the nutrition can really support that. But on its own, I mean, it's, you know, you can't eat your way to uh, an amazing physique. You know, you can't eat your way to bigger muscles and look like a bodybuilder. Um, And you can't eat your way to, you know, being a competitive cyclist. You have to do the training and then, you know, implement nutrition to support that. But focus on, you know, getting, like I said, 30 grams protein after after your workouts. Carbs will be important too, particularly after your endurance rides. That's absolutely perfect. Thank you so much for that. Obviously, very selfish there. Ask a very personal question for some advice, but uh, I think those are as advice that can be extrapolated to anyone listening to the podcast. Tyler, where can people reach you if they have any further questions or read your your research? Uh, Yeah, so most of my research is available on PubMed. I don't know if your readers would be familiar with PubMed. Um, I have a unique last name, so if you type my last name into PubMed, I'm pretty sure I'm the only church ward Vinay on there. Uh, so my name is not like Smith or something like that, where you're going to get you know hundreds mm-hmm. of thousands of people with the name Smith. So if you go on PubMed and type my last name, you'll be able to find uh, you know all of the all of the work that I've been involved with. I do have a Twitter account, um, although I, I have been a little bit um, I haven't been using it probably as much as I should, and I, I sometimes have people encourage me to use it more, particularly some of my students. So maybe I should do that. But if, if people message me on Twitter, I'll probably respond, or um, they can email me. You know, if they again type my name at McGill, they'll they'll be able to access my my email address if they have a question. Um, they can they can contact me uh, there as well. Oh, that's perfect. Thank you, Tyler. And fingers crossed, I make it over to uh, <laughs> to Canada eventually for a conference and uh, you never know we might be running past i'm definitely pushing forward a bit with uh, some research in the concurrent training area so hopefully our awesome. paths cross in the future yeah well, it'd be it'd be great to uh to cross paths and actually uh, see each other in, in person maybe at a conference sometime and uh mm. yeah but thank you though so much for uh, inviting me on your podcast i appreciate it uh, cheers tyler Thank you.